I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey everyone, and welcome once again to another edition of I-94, coming to you direct from a sweltering attic here in Chicago. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. He is hopefully in a cooler apartment in Boston. We are speaking today with the author Jesse McCarthy. He is an essayist who's been published in The Millions, N Plus One, and many other places, including our own Point magazine. His new novel is called The Fugitivities. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much, guys. Good to be with you. Really appreciate it. Jesse, I kind of want to start um, with some thoughts about what I would call the source material for the novel, if that's okay. When I was reading it, um, and this is maybe something that didn't occur to you, and I'll be interested in your reaction to it, but it reminded me very much of the Woody Allen movie Manhattan, which uh, came out in 1977. And as I was thinking about why that was, I realized that both Manhattan and the Fugitivities owe something of a debt uh, to the works of Gustave Flaubert, and I'm thinking particularly of a sentimental education. Uh, Manhattan is a loose remake of that work, which came out for people who are not familiar uh, around 1870. Uh, it is the follow-up to Madame Bovary, not thematically or in characters, but it was his second book. And it concerns uh, the lives of young Parisians uh, kind of just before the French Revolution. I would call the characters kind of anti-heroic, maybe. Um, Henry James memorably described the novel as cynical. I don't know if I'd call your novel cynical, but I did see some real similarities in the way that your characters move through the novel and the way that Flaubert used space and time to tell kind of his story of the psychogeography of the era in question. Am I completely off base? Uh, uh, no, it's very perceptive, actually. Uh, the truth is, is that uh, that was, in fact, one of the models for the book. Um, Sentimental Education has always been uh, one of my favorite novels. Um, and it's a novel that... Uh, I should say, I suppose, for our listeners, in terms of my background, um, although I'm American, I uh, grew up abroad. Uh, my parents were journalists, and um, we moved to Paris when I was quite young. I was about eight years old. And so I went through uh, a kind of fairly standard or formal um, French educational system. And as part of that, you know, we had to, to read sort of through their canon. Um, and so... I encountered um, Flaubert's works um, in that context. At the time, um, we were assigned uh, Madame Bovary, which is, uh, you know, I think pretty common, actually. Even here, if you get assigned a novel by Flaubert, it, it tends to be that one. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I loved that novel, too. But I think um, it was probably around uh, the time I was uh, kind of, getting out of college around 2006, 2007, really around uh, just before the moment when I began um, both kind of the, the travels and the thinking and the writing or the initial writing of this of this book manuscript, um, I finally sat down and, and read The Sentimental Education um, and was completely blown away by it. Um, and I think it was partly that I was attracted to the way in which um, Flaubert, to my mind, was thinking about um, novelistic form and kind of rejecting some of the 
some of the more uh, sort of conventional elements of um, plot, something, you know, for which that novel was, was sort of famously criticized at the time, sort of wayward, it didn't, didn't have the right kinds of development, it had certain disjunctures in time that people found to be um, frustrating um, to their expectations. Um, but also, of course, his his deeply um, ironic, some would say cynical. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a more complicated case, or, or there's sort of more complicated things at work. But certainly, his deeply ironic take on um, a certain kind of uh, milieu, the milieu of uh, sort of young bourgeois intellectuals, uh, slightly adrift. Um, um, interested and invested in, in politics or believing that they are in certain kinds of ways, um, but also, you know, failing to, uh, not only I would say to live up to those politics, but even in a certain sense to really understand what the political is and, and his kind of, um, interest in exploiting that, that disjuncture, um, and that differential. And all of those, um, things were, were very much on my mind. And when I came to, um, sitting down and thinking about, um, you know, how I was going to write the book and what some of my, what some of my models were going to be. Sentimental, sentimental education was absolutely one of the most important influences. Um, yeah, so it's it, well observed. Well, I, I think it's an interesting thing. You, you noted that Flaubert's characters are interested in politics, but don't necessarily understand them. You know, my recollection of the novel, and it's, it's been quite some time since I read it, to be candid with you. But they seem to be very preoccupied with questions of status and money uh, and doing things that were kind of expected of them, which I, I believe is why James, you know, labeled it as cynical. And sure. somebody else might see that as a, a different way. And certainly the characters in your book um, have expectations as well and expectations thrust upon them. But I think that's an interesting observation because one of the things that happens in your book is that the politics of the characters become increasingly kind of slippery. Um, they're expected to do certain things, and certain things are proscribed by the groups they're in, you know, notably whether they're in the New York mm -hmm. literary scene or whether they're teaching at a, mm -hmm. a school. Um, but those aren't necessarily the things that, A, they believe in or, or even feel comfortable in. And I, I think that that does directly yeah. reflect what Flaubert was writing about, you know, in 1840, you know, before the French Revolution. Uh, yeah, or certainly the revolution of, uh, of 48. But what I would say is, is that, you know, the other thing I think, um, and, and this gets, uh, it really does get at some of the kind of core similarities between, between the books is that, um, you know, it's a book that, that in many ways is also, um, interested in some of the tensions or differences in between, um, you know, relationships of, um, romantic entanglement and aspiration and, um, you know, people uh, using each other and being interested in each other for certain kinds of um, social adva advancement, you know, in a, in a, in a manner very similar, um, you know, to, to Stendhal, um, who had already explored that kind of terrain. Um, but it's also, um, you know, famous for its, um, I think, rather... Um, um, rather sharp and, and, um, and, and acutely observed, um, sense of, uh, male friendship, uh, you know, notably famously in the book between, um, Frederick 
and uh, Delaurier, his friend, um, who uh, sort of have these um, parallel paths through the book um, and seem at times to be um, so incredibly close, um, but but also at other times um, sort of worlds apart. Uh, and, and, and some, some of that, uh, you know, aspect of, of wanting to explore both, both of those kinds of relationships and setting them up in some of the ways that, um, that Flaubert does in his novel were, were definitely influential to me as I was thinking about, uh, what I wanted to do in, in my own book. There was a, a sense of randomness in, throughout the novel of characters running into each other, um, running into Octavio at the movie theater, his college friend, and... Yeah, for me, what the influences that I read into, and I have very different educations than you and Jamie. I, I was thinking of like um, Carver, The Beats, yeah, Richard yeah. Lankletter, Slacker. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but it's sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just there was this like wonderful sense of randomness, and some of the reviews I read, you know, they were like, "There's not a clear cut ending," and you know, that's very random and blah blah, and you know. That's the whole point. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, isn't literature supposed to be like different? I mean, it's you know, it's not. I mean, I every the, project is its own, but with with this particular project, that's the point. It seemed to me. Yeah, and that's that was it was it was very you know I read some of these reviews and I'm just like, don't you guys read anything besides James Patterson or something? Because it's not formulaic, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, mm-hmm. it was also mentioned in a few things that it was a, a, a quest, you know, it was a quest narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that it was a quest when you were writing it, and did you have any um, influences in that sense as as a quest novel? Well, you know, um, I you know I appreciate that you you know you brought that up, especially kind of the tradition of um, the American road novel, you know, and and um, and the beats to a certain extent, the idea of being on the road of a con- and, and of. Uh, the, yeah, questing and mobility uh, through space, which allows for a certain kind of, um, you know, contingency and 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 randomness. Um, you know, when I when I when I think about the the matrix, if I can put it that way, of influences, and this was actually you know part of what I was trying to set out to do was, you know, in, in a certain sense, you know, I. You know, I grew up in France, and so I had, on the one hand, a kind of, I, you know, I was steeped and soaked in um, the French literary canon, the French tradition. So it was one way in which I sort of came to literature. My ideas about literature and literary taste were strongly influenced by that experience. And then on the flip side, um, when I was in college, I was primarily interested in reading the history of the American novel. And then even more specifically, um, the history of African-American literature, uh, which ended up being, you know, what I pursued later on in grad school as a, as, you know, as an academic project. So I, you know, mostly, for, for the most part, write about, uh, you know, think about and, 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 you know, do research on is really, you know, the, the history of, of the African-American, you know, literary tradition and also thinking about its connections to various other literary traditions and movements. And, you know, when I, when I sat down to write the novel, I was very conscious of the fact that one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to see, you know, okay, what, what would happen if I tried to, you know, combine some of the, um, some of these different traditions, um, in a, 
in a kind of, you know, some kind of new synthesis. So, on you know, pull in Flaubert um, from the American tradition, you know, the road novel. Um, yeah, to a certain extent, you know, that kind of on-the-road beatnik, you know, atmosphere. Um, and then also, you know, from the African-American literary tradition, uh, you know, you know, Zora Neale Hurston and Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and, you know, uh, you know all these preoccupations with, you know, identity and race. And how would it, you know, what would happen and what was it possible in a sense to kind of fuse these all together into something new and different? But to be honest, the other uh, sort of catalyzing element, um, which, which was partly just sort of um, had to do with you know, the fact that it happened to be 2007 um, when, you know, I started thinking about all of this was, um, that was actually the year when um, Roberto Bolaño's uh, late novels, um, these great magnificent novels, uh, The Savage Detectives and 2666, which he had written in, in Spanish in the late 90s, uh, started getting translated into English. And um, and I and I was reading them as they as they were coming out, and even though I think I already had to a certain extent, you know, this I this kind of vague project of wanting to see what would happen if I brought together the the various kind of literary strands that I was interested in, maybe obsessed with, you know, what would happen if I brought these together. The other side of it is also that, um, you know, the experience of reading Bolaño, especially the Savage Detectives, but also Two Six Six Six. Um, really, um, you know, it, it gave me a, a, a new sense of of conviction. Uh, you know, it really made me believe that the contemporary novel was possible in a certain kind of way. Um, and the sense of a kind of openness uh, in in his works, uh, the sense, this kind of tactility and immediacy of of uh, of life, which includes a certain amount of you know, you know, aleatory things that are happening and, and things that are not particularly resolved, um, but where the, you know, irresolution is kind of built in and part of the point, all of that seemed to me to sort of validate uh, what I wanted to do. Now, whether or not the experiment, you know, works is, you know, another question. And, you know, I leave it to, you know, to the readers and to history to be the judge. But that's certainly, you know, what was going into the gumbo as I was, as I was, you know, trying to come up with this new thing that I had in my head. We're speaking with the author, Jesse McCarthy. His new book is called The Fugitivities. It's out now from Melville House. And we're actually going to take a pause right now and listen to a selection from Jesse's book. We want to thank our reader, as always. She is Shanna Van Volt. We also want to thank Achilles Navarro and Cheshire Holmes from International Anthem for providing a brand new soundtrack for us here on I-94. We'll be right back after this short interlude. Jonah caught sight of Octavio ahead of him as he neared the water. He recognized the gate, the slim frame nimbly jaunting past some corporate art on the corner of Water Street. His presence made noirish by an orange and white Con Edison ventricle, siphoning off steam that turned lavender, then green in a traffic light. They went under FDR Drive and Jonah caught up just as they were turning onto the pier. Octavia swiveled and extended an arm in embrace without entirely arresting his motion, as though anticipating and absorbing the momentum of the encounter. They exchanged swift and somewhat severe greetings before resuming the march down to the water. A foghorn sounded. 
At the far end of the dock, a water taxi was tying up. It was packed with business types, all jockeying for positions at the exit. When the chain rope was pulled aside, they came pouring out in droves like extras from a Buster Keaton film. Octavia looked upon the scene with an enigmatic grin. When the commuters had disembarked, they made their leisurely way on board. The sun was hoisting itself over the deck of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. They stood at the prow of the water taxi, the spray of the East River prickling Jonah's shirt as his tie snaked in the snapping wind. The roar of the motor and the flapping gust nearly covered their voices, so they ended up howling two feet away from each other like floor traders caught in a 500-point drop. Jonah had to concede the genius. He certainly wouldn't do it on an everyday basis, but this was a hell of a way to commute to Red Hook for work. Octavio gazed south to the Verrazano Bridge, lying open like a parenthesis on its back. Octavio's impassioned hollers overcame the diesel motoring. We need to go south. What? You want to get off in Sheepshead Bay? No, I'm talking farther south, all the way south. Think big picture. What? Florida? No, man. I'm talking farther out, past the Caribbean. You want to go to South America? To Rio. Rio? If you want sand and bikinis, why not Orchard Beach? No seas tan bruto. Perdonalo Dios, el caballero es flamático. You're losing me. Why Rio? You remember my girl Barth's? Barth? Maggie Reynolds, brunette, soccer team. She was the year above us. We both took lit theory in our junior year. Every time she spoke, it was Barth's this and Barth's that. I used to tease her. The name stuck. Anyways, we had a thing, right? It was going pretty well, too, but then we had to break it off, and she decided to leave the city to work with favela children in Rio through one of those global-giving NGO-type things. Anyway, the point is I have a plan. We go down there, we find her, we say what's up, you know, and she gets us connected down there. She'll have the whole place figured out. All we gotta do is take it all in. And she can put us up. I mean, she wouldn't refuse me. We have history at this point. I'm talking romantic history. Yeah, I'll bet, Jonas scoffed. You want to go all the way down to Brazil to rekindle a flame? That's romantic. That's cool, man. Maybe that'll be impactful on your life. But why do you need to bring me along? I'm not trying to play third wheel. Are you suggesting we're going to get work with Barth NCO or something like that? Think bigger. We don't go to Rio. We begin in Rio. We take on South America, Brazil, Argentina, Bolivia, Peru, the Andes, the Amazon, the Southern Cone. I'm saying, let's get the hell out of here. It's about having connections on the ground, man. Once we do, we make our own NGO. Needs getting obliged. Anyway, who needs a reason? This country is terminal. It doesn't deserve saving. I wouldn't wish a life in Castro country on anyone. But if you think Miami is a paradise, you're out of your mind. It's a drugged out swamp with a Gucci store. A resort world run by reactionaries, real estate barons, and cartel lawyers. The population is lunatic espatistas and a mezclado of non-white refugees who basically do all the service jobs in the tourism hustle where the overlords launder their money. Come on, man, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. It's the same everywhere. New York is a joke, a punchline in a tired dice man routine. Have you listened to the way people talk? The writing is on the wall. We have to get out of here, see something else before it's too late. How can these people live? How can anyone live when it's like you can't breathe half the time? That was a selection from a brand new book out on Melville House. It's called The Fugitivities. We are speaking today with the author, Jesse McCarthy. Jesse, uh... I wanted to see if we could get our arms around the book, the novel itself, and, and dig in a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. at, as we mentioned before, 
You are an essayist. Uh, you actually had two books come out this year. I think they were both this year. The so this yes. novel and then the the book of essays was called is called uh, Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul. The the title mm-hmm. essay having appeared in the Point first, which is where I, where I found you. Um, mm. and it's a great mm-hmm. book of essays. And there's a there's a there's one in there called The Low End Theory that's uh, mm-hmm. play, play on but not about the the Tribe Called Quest album. Um, so I mm-hmm. wanted. You bring up the term fugitivity in that essay, um, and and I wanted to see if you could talk mm-hmm. about that and 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 who Fred Moten is as well, and and how he's influenced you. But also, I wanted to read something yeah. real, real quick from the novel and just kind of set uh, a g- generalized picture of the novel for for listeners. Um, you know, we follow a, a character, a young man named Jonah, who uh, who grew up in Paris and and came to school in the states and. Has finished school and is and is uncertain what to do next in life. And uh, there there are plenty of ways to go and things that seem important, but he, he has a hard time making a decision. The novel's in four parts, and at the beginning of each part is is a is a missive, a letter from uh, a woman who Jonah had has an ongoing love affair, at least on on his side. Uh, with and uh, we read these letters from Arna to Jonah at the beginning of each mm-hmm. part, and uh, I just want to read a section, uh, one of her letters. Um, it's before the fourth part; doesn't give anything away, but I think it really, really captures uh, the feeling of what's going on in the novel. And she says, uh, she says, I sometimes have to stop and think about how extraordinary it is. What a time to be alive! All these new freedoms for love and acceptance, expanding the picture of what a life could look like, what my life could be the chance to be a part of a historic moment, but I'm clearly not ready yet. And I'm skipping a little bit. She says, and yet I still f- somehow feel trapped, more unsure and frustrated than ever, more afraid that things aren't adding up towards something that will last. I secretly worry whether what I'm doing will be worthy of everything my parents and their parents did for me. Maybe there won't be an answer. Um, can you talk about that essay, Low End Theory, and, uh, and a little bit about that passage I just read? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate you um, uh, taking us to that to that place. Um, you know, I guess I'll begin by saying a little something about um, Fred Moten. Um, Fred Moten is a philosopher. Uh, he's also a poet. Uh, some would say uh, he's one of the foremost theorists um, uh, in what we call Black Studies. Um, performance studies. Um, I think of him as a, you know, as a poet and a thinker, a poet and an intellectual um, and a philosopher. And um, he's somebody whose uh, um, writings I especially came to, um, you know, come to know well uh, as a graduate student. And so in a sense, there was a kind of professional, uh, you know, uh, uh, imperative there. Um, I wanted to know what the most interesting, cutting edge, you know, you know, stuff was was what was happening in my field that was you know the most exciting, and his name just kept coming up again and again. This is the guy you need to read. This is the guy who's really um, pushing you know pushing the edge of the envelope and um, and just one of the most brilliant brilliant um, figures of our time. And uh, you know, I was very fortunate. Um, to you know, to get an opportunity to to meet him and to um, interview him because I had to do a profile for him um, 
uh, for Harvard Magazine. He's a he's a he attended Harvard as a as an undergraduate, um, and they wanted to profile him, and um, you know, it was the kind of thing where I think that that meeting solidified for me a number of um, you know a number of the you know attitudes and views that I already had, but it, it but it really enriched them and it, and it deepened my sense. Um, that, you know, his, his lines of thinking were, were felt, felt important to me. Um, and, and they feel important to me even when, you know, I think in the way that, um, you know, thinkers, intellectuals, and to a certain extent academics, you know, we nitpick and we disagree and we like to, because that's also important and productive for us to have our conversations. Um, but even when I do disagree, I feel the, the importance of his work. And, um, he's known for, um, coining and, and popularizing, at least within the field, um, this term of fugitivity, um, which, you know, takes its root, of course, in um, American slavery. And the, uh, 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 you know, we have, of course, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act, but also uh, the, the fact that so much of black uh, life under the conditions that, um, that obtained, you know, from the Middle Passage forward had to be um, lived, was experienced, and had to be uh, um, conceptualized also um, in, in, in flight. Um, and, and of course, as we know, very often quite literally um, and in, in the most uh, um, sort of unimaginable circumstances uh, um, um, and under uh, pressures of the most intense sort of existential kind, right? The need to... Um, uh, you know, find a way to get away and to get out from under immediate structures of brutality, of oppression, and find a way, and find a space, a space to maneuver, a space to um, keep going, a space to create something for yourself, a space to connect with other people, a space to reconnect the things that um, in the immediate space of domination are being taken away from you or being stripped from you. And one of the things that I think that... Um, you know, Moten has done his, in his work is to, um, you know, really show us how some of those um, dynamics are encoded in a certain kind of way in aesthetic practices as well, um, how they are translated in a certain sense um, and show up again in, um, in our music, um, in our literature, in our poetry, uh, in, in dance and performance and various other kinds of aspects of social and cultural life and production. And one of the, I think, tensions about fugitivity, right, is that on the one hand, it proceeds from this, uh, this, this needful uh, um, impulse uh, to, to get away, to run away, to find some other way to be, um, to, to seek out that degree of freedom which is being denied. Um, but it's also, it, it, but it's not, um, how should I put this? It's not sentimental about that project, right? It understands that, um, you know, the, the, the constraints never in fact completely disappear. And oftentimes that, um, that impulse is, is, you know, ultimately and even totally frustrated. Um, there, there can sometimes be no exit and yet within 
a context of no exit within a context of no uh, possible of, of no possible escape um, how do you sustain and what does it mean for for one to sustain that impulse even over and against right it's impossible positive outcome if you can if that that's makes sense and you know I think I think fugitivity um, in you know in Moton's sense um, speaks to that uh, and then as I say you know he he has an extraordinary um, body of work um, and it's not only about this concept there are many others that you know that he's developed over the years and that he thinks with but this would be at least one important one um, that he thinks about in you know across an extraordinary array of of works of um, uh, of works of art in in every sort of conceivable domain and you know when I was you know this is a novel that took me about um, ten years to write um, if, if if I go back to really sort of the inert uh, initial drafting stages. Um, that doesn't mean that I was working on it every day for 10 years, right? But what it means is, is that it, it went through a very long process. There were many times when I had sort of given up on the project and thought, you know, well, you know, no one, no one likes it. No one's interested in it. Um, maybe it's not good enough. Maybe uh, this experiment, you know, that I was alluding to before of trying to bring these different traditions together, it just doesn't work. Um, and, you know, I was um, fortunate enough, essentially, to, again, we, we could talk about randomness, but I was fortunate enough to really kind of accidentally through, um, you know, through a party meet um, uh, this wonderful guy, Michael Barron, um, who at the time was, you know, uh, working at Melville House and, and, and you know, was you know, working as an editor there and doing acquisitions. And um, and he said, you know, listen, man, you know, I, this does sound compelling to me and I would like to take a look at this. And he found that, you know, the project had promise and, you know, we would still, you know, we wanted to work on it. We saw that there were still things that could be refined. And, you know, as I came into the kind of final passes at that point, when I was working on it with Michael, I came more and more to, uh, you know, that point where some of the ultimate decisions, including decisions about the title have to be made. Right. And, um, and the this concept of of, of of fugitivity and the fact that that Moten had come to be in this particular moment um, important to me, it all seemed to me to come together and and to fit some of the broader um, th thematics of the of the book. And so that's how I ended up, you know, using this I, you know slightly weird, slightly frustrating title. You know, many people are constantly <laughs> telling me it's. Oh, that book, The Fugitives, and I'm like, well, that sounds like a thriller, and it's not yeah. quite that. But, um, but it's my title. I'm sticking with it, and you know, I, and I, and I, yeah. I like the resonances. I, I hope other people can come to appreciate them. But if I can say just a thing also about because you you went to that um, passage, and I appreciate it with with Arna. You know, uh, Arna is a character who, in, in 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 that passage, part of what she's grappling with is actually right her um, her queerness. And uh, her sexuality, insofar as she's thinking about it in terms of um, a kind of wider politics and social politics and also a kind of historical legacy, right? Like, what does it mean to live at a moment when, you know, in a certain kind of objective way for, for, for queer folk, um, you know, for people with, uh, you know, the non, you know, standard heteronormative kind of orientation, you're living at a historical moment. Um, when there's more freedom for that than 
than there really has been ever before in history, particularly at least within you know certain societies and, and including our own. And at the same time, right, there's so much that still that still feels like it hasn't gotten to where we would be satisfied, where we feel like we can feel genuinely optimistic and hopeful about being able to live the way we want to live. And so, and that tension, I think, to me, extends, right, not only to um, questions of sexuality and maybe gender, but also, right, to, to questions of race, to questions of political economy more broadly. And, you know, this is a book that's also largely set in the Bush years and um, and is very, uh, you know, one of the things I also wanted to capture was this kind of, you know, American sort of late imperial, both decadent, but also very, um, you know, kind of very hopeless kind of vibe, this sense that, you know, you're living in a time where there's this bizarre feeling and paradox of on the one hand, um, you know, certain tangible, concrete things that you can point to and say things are better than they've ever been before, and yet an overwhelming and almost apocalyptic feeling that things can, are cannot change and are maybe sliding for the worst and are maybe sort of uh, tending in directions that are are extremely um, bitter and negative. And I, I, I wanted to try and, if I could, sort of capture some of that. Um, some of that feeling, just kind of that sense of what it what it's like to what it was like to be alive in that moment. Again, I don't know if I succeeded, but that was certainly part of what I wanted the book to try and do. Jesse, let's stop right there because we do need to remind folks of the people that make this station possible. We are in conversation with Jesse McCarthy. He's the author of a brand new book out from Melville House called The Fugitivities. After the break, we're actually going to hear another selection from his book, and then we will return in conversation. You are listening to I ninety four right here on one hundred five five FM. This is WLPN. Lumpin' Radio. This summer on I-94, Joe Mino, Makita Brotman, Nancy DeCampel, J.P. Olson and Luke Walden, Tom Lynn, Atticus Lish, Paget Powell, Peter Cameron, Margot Mifflin, Chris Ware, and many, many more. Only on Lumpin's Books and Literature Show. I-94, every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. In New York, everything that matters occurs as part of a scene. Octavio had made inroads in the film scene, and these networks overlapped significantly with the adjacent literary market. Jonah would pick him up after his shift got out at the Reggio, and they would fortify themselves at a local dive before making an appearance at an apartment in a cozy book-lined apartment in Cobble Hill or Fort Greene or a chic loft in Tribeca. One of the bigger events of the season was the launch party for a new lit mag with a radical name and a sleek green cover. Octavio was tight with one of the founding editors whom he had known from his school days. The comrades funding the publication and staffing the key positions on its masthead reflected the city's superconducting private school to Ivy League pipeline. The word on the street was that the most talented writers would be gravitating to its pages, attracted by the considerable sums on offer for fairly predictable content, and by the hot interns prominently featured on the magazine's elegant, minimalist website. The launch took place at the magazine's new offices, located in a refashioned Greenpoint warehouse right on the East River. 
Octavio and Jonah rolled up a little after 11, entering into a scene that was sumptuous and well-attended. The guests were balkanized into tiny groupuscules, each in their corners accentuating the negative space of the floor plan, which in city psychology was also, of course, a supreme assertion of luxury. All around the open cross-section of the loft were the faces of the sad young literary men, each in their own way terribly preoccupied with the unbearable whiteness of being. Jonah knew them. Not personally, but almost by osmosis, and he felt a measure of ironic sympathy for their plight. They had self-consciously constructed themselves as a force for good. They had good politics, went to good schools, where he'd first crossed paths with the tribe. They were good readers of the best reviews, which they hoped to emulate and rival, copies of which further advantaged a vintage mid-century credenza. They all wanted change and hated racism, principally in politics and geographically in the vast hinterlands, starting in Long Island and New Jersey. The greatest shame of all was the racism in their own families. Sometimes, a good few drinks in, they wanted to confess those unpardonable horror stories and hot, breathy convulsions that Jonah had some practice in compassionately, but firmly, evading. He felt for them because what could be wrong with them, really? They wanted what he wanted, more or less, to see good ideas and good art triumph, especially their own. The only problem was that the ascendant power blocks didn't seem to care a whit what they said. Those with the real power, the consulting firm types, the eye bankers, the DC apparatchiks, and the math majors gone to Wall Street that they knew from college, wanted art, if they ever thought about it at all, to be larger, more expensive version of a desktop background. They were too busy rigging up massive systems that would liquidate the old printing press jobs to worry about what was being said by the last cohort to have them. The sad young literary men were the most despised men of their time. They had a declining share of even those few perches they once held like the Glen Viziers in the days of the Plimptons, the Mailers, the Updikes, when shuttling between mistresses in Connecticut and dipping down to Greenwich Village to drink with famous war correspondents was all in a day's work. Most of the top jobs in their circles were held by women now, and the proclivities associated with fashionable narcotics were starting to be scrutinized and sometimes even openly deplored. There was still money, of course, but without status, it was an enfeebled collateral glare. They formed, ironically enough, a genuinely besieged class, and presumably in their minds they constituted an oppressed one, too, since whatever largesse and goodwill among the midtown Mycenaeses remained was reserved strictly for identities that would appear charitably treated upon its disbursement. Since they would never be in that number, the spoils of a wilting branch had to be fought over even more bitterly. It was the main reason such events were to be avoided. Over a mixed drink, the knives come out, friends and colleagues cruelly humiliating each other while desperately trying to appear relaxed and popular. There was no direct danger to Jonah in this, he would be safely ignored, unless he spoke up. But to what end? It was perfectly typical for him to spend a great deal of these tense soirees finding ways to say nothing at all. That was a selection from The Fugitivities, and we are in conversation today with Jesse McCarthy. He is the author of the brand new novel, Out from Melville House. Of course, this is I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen and Mr. Michael Sachs. Hello. And, you know, just before the break, Jesse, we were talking about a lot of stuff. One of the things I just kind of wanted to throw out there, because I'm actually interested in what my... uh, more traditionally raised American colleagues have to think about this. Like you, I spent a great deal of my childhood overseas in in Britain. And Mm. the lens that I looked at your novel through was really one of class. And so I was interested to read American reviews that really focused on the race aspects of it. And Mm -hmm. I wondered if that was because 
it was my background or if I was missing something. And I didn't know if the aspects of the idea that a young black man in 2007 might not have the freedom to do these things would not have occurred to me because certainly in Britain, that is not necessarily the case. So it was, it was a very different lens to look through. So you're saying you thought it was bizarre that the reviews focused on race and not on class? Correct. Well, I think it's bizarre that our society doesn't focus on class more. And I'm not trying to take anything away from the race discussion, but, you know, the class issues in this country are, are, are bad, too, and it, and it divides us. And I think there's a lot of focus. There's not enough focus on class in, in our discussions about things and, and problems in our country. I didn't, I didn't read any of the reviews, so I, I can't speak to them specifically. But I think one of the things the book does implicitly is show how those two things can be confused and be hard to think about. You know, how... Mm-hmm. how um, also, they, people can they, use class as a cop out. Like, I don't want to talk about race because I'm poor. You well, know? well, a lot of yeah. so so Jonah is not steeped in poverty. Okay, he you know he 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 has things. You know, he has material mm-hmm. things, and he he mm-hmm. had a good education, and you know he's he's able to travel the world. He's well, able he has to do an inheritance too. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. He, yeah. But money. you know, he also has a a a, a re- very real, very deep. His anger that's anchored in history yeah. that applies directly to him, and so he's he he wrestles with those things, you know, and like, and what I what I agree with you, Jeremy, is though the, that wrestling does not that intellectual wrestling does not happen very often in the press at all, or even amongst ourselves. Honestly, it it it's hard stuff to talk about, and and I, I like it when when it plays out in novels like this. So, well, on that note, Jesse, the the you were talking about the the fugitivity. Is it a theory? Would you call it a theory? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's fine to call it a, you know a theory, um, or you know, you might say that it's um, you know it's a it's a it's a it's a metaphor in a certain sense. Okay. That that, that we that that's being used often in, in in a theoretical context. But yeah, sure. So was Joan? You were talking about the you know this idea that you find a space under the dominance. Was that what this novel was about? Jonah finding his space in the world under this fugitivity dominance? I, I'm not really familiar with the well, concept. But just, I, just if I could just interrupt there, just because if I remember correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Jesse, I believe that Fred Moten talked about, um, he believed that black Americans were there not to save American society, but to create an alternative to it. And that was mm-hmm. part of his idea of fugitivity. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, so you know, one of the things I would say is that um, you know, I think you know, in, through the title, um, you know, through the you know thematic of fugitivity, I guess, you know, obviously there's a certain kind of sense in which I'm I'm placing my novel squarely in dialogue with um, you know currents in in you know in black intellectual thought of of our time. Um, and I, I did want to do that. Um, at the same time, um, to me, you know, the whole point, uh, or how should I put this, what, what a novel is for and what it can do and what it's good at is very different, right, from what a philosophical text or a theoretical text yes, or sure. an argument can, can do. And the book is not an argument, right? The yeah, novel is yeah, yeah, not yeah. intended to make a point. It doesn't have a... Uh, uh, it's not intended to endorse 
uh, uh, Fred Moten's theories. Or yeah, I didn't get that feeling from. at all. I didn't, um, just to be clear, Jesse, I didn't get that feeling, but I was just wondering if that sure, was, yeah. you know, if that's something you thought about. Oh yeah, no, but 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 I agree, and, I, and it's one of the reasons I, I'm glad you, you bring it up, and I think you're right to, um, because, you know, one of the things that I would say is that, um, you know, to me this is in in, in part like, uh, you know, the the more uh, Flaubertian side, if I can put it that way, right? One of the things that, in, as far as I'm concerned, the novel as a form is particularly um, particularly acute at exploring, but also, frankly, of exploiting, um, is precisely, you know, the uh, um, experiential irony. And, um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that was... Um, that was particularly important to me was to have the um, have the class and race contradictions of the characters, you know, stand. Yeah. <laughs> because, in fact, I think the 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 ways in which they fail to line up, both with you know maybe societal stereotype. But also, even with the character's own, you know, own self-conception of these yes, things or, yes. or narrativizations of them, is to me, uh, um, um, a, 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 you know, a part of of the of how we actually live in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Which is to say, often um, in a certain amount of. Uh, you know, delusion, and sometimes also, you know, in good faith, but sometimes in bad faith, right? And, and you know, there's the problem of ideology and the kind of way in which sometimes we end up, you know, adopting views that are most convenient, uh, you know, to, <laughs> to us. And that convenience, oh, yeah. right, might have to do w- uh, with Th- not the thing that we are saying it has to do with, but this other thing that yeah. we're not saying. Yes. Right? So we might we might be we might be choosing to press on one particular point. I really want to talk about class because precisely we don't want to talk about race. But the inverse is also often the case, right? Maybe say, well, I really want to pick on this particular point and slightly omit this other side of the equation precisely because it's less advantageous to me to talk about that point. And I wanted uh, uh, my characters to be, to really, you know, uh, uh, wander and sort of expose themselves to these contradictions or, or have those contradictions be fairly, you know, um, uh, exposed um, and exposable to the reader. And, and the other other thing I would say, and this is um, uh, James, to your point about um, different different kind of contexts based upon right, you know, the the kind of international, um, you know, setting and, and, and you know where you might where you are. And one of the things that um, was important it was important to me to also you know kind of get into the book was the extraordinarily um, the extraordinary variety of uh, 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 and, and, and radical difference in many ways, right? Um, that 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 obtains when you know the you know questions of race happen in different societies and yeah. different cultures, right? And so, I mean, this is a novel where blackness is navigated, you know, in a Brazilian context and in a Latin American context and very in different countries, and it, and it means and 
you know, kind of cashes out differently, even from one country to next, obviously, in Latin America, but also, of course, within, you know, a French context, um, the question of, you know, um, different, you know, um, you know, African backgrounds in, in, you know, the characters that, uh, 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 you know, w- will come together in, in the Parisian sections of the novel, um, who themselves come from very different kind of, you know, obviously different national and cultural backgrounds, although they might have, you know, a certain kind of francophone connection. Um, and not to mention, of course, even within, um, you know, the strictly U.S. context, you know, these this extraordinarily, extraordinarily radical divergence between the position of Jonah and say the position of his students at the school where he's teaching yeah. and you know the the life possibilities that his students have and the risks that they are uh, uh, routinely exposed to um, and his own life possibilities and the comparatively uh, very low risks uh, that he is exposed to even though uh, in various moments of the novel including at least in one moment in, in Brazil he'll he'll sort of imagine that he kind of is also in a, you know incurring a similar kind of risk right. uh, but the question of whether or not that's actually validated or justified you know is very much uh, you know up, up, in, up in question yeah. yeah yeah we have to leave it there because we're out of time but we've been Whoa. speaking with the author <laughs> Jesse McCarthy He's got a brand new novel out called The Fugitivities. It's out from Melville House. We've also been discussing, and we should mention that it's out from Norton, Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul? Essays, Jesse's book. Uh, you had two books come out this year. That is a lot of work. Jesse, real quick, do you have anything else coming out uh, in the near future for us to look for? <laughs> you know, I, I don't have anything in the in the immediate uh, near future. Uh, you know, it was, I will just say quickly, you know, it was sort of an accident that both of these books uh, ended up coming out in the same year. And uh, I almost thought that it was sort of uh, unfortunate because sometimes, you know, you worry that, the you know, the static from one will get in the way of the other. Um, but no, you know, I'm, uh, I'm working on my um, academic book, um, which is about um, black writers in the context of the early Cold War. I'm doing more, you know, research. I have some, you know, academic journal articles that I'm, you know, are forthcoming that I'm working on. Um, and, you know, um, and I tend to do, I'll still keep up some of the sort of public writing and essays and reviews and things like that uh, to the extent that I can and, and, and have the time. And of course, I do intend to return to fiction, uh, but probably not anytime soon. I, I think I'm going to take a, a, a break from that for a while. Um, and uh, before I come back to before I come back to that, Great. but uh, thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank, uh, you, thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to give Jesse the last word as we always do. We're going to close with a, a final excerpt from his book. Once again, it's the Fugitivities. Jesse McCarthy is the author. It's out for Melville House. As always, it is available at every good library and bookstore everywhere. We'll be back next week with Margot Mifflin. Thanks so much for spending time with us right here on I ninety four. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, guys. This ceremonious moment led Lazaro to initiate a long conversation about Brazil and the way it had become a lagoon within the ocean of world literature. He was also deeply versed in Candomblé and explained that he had written a paper about Nina Rodriguez's anthropological studies on the religious practices of the Africans in Bahia, but so far had been unable to publish it. Given his paltry understanding of the deities whose exotic names Lazaro invoked, Jonah could barely make out what he was saying. But Octavia was deeply enraptured and kept pressing Lazaro for more, occasionally exclaiming in Spanish as he recognized the equivalent of a certain figure or ritual he knew by a Cuban alias. Teresa held the joint precariously and learnedly, tilting her neck way back as she steered their talk back in a direction Jonah could more readily follow, 
the Brazilian cinema of the 60s and 70s, the brilliant madness of Glauber Rocha. The Americans listened intently and Lazaro nimbly set about preparing more smoke. By the second round, the conversation had gotten predictably hazy and garbled. Teresa, Lazaro, and Bars were slipping more and more back into Portuguese. Octavio seemed annoyed at his inability to keep up. He started tugging at Bars' sleeve, and when she pushed him away, they got into a playfully sloppy tussle. Teresa started hooting and yelling at them to get a room already. Everyone was high. A long report of gunshots crackled through the house. There was a second of silence, then more gunfire, louder, traveling and bursting echoes. Lazaro shoved the Americans to the ground. There were two loud bangs, then the sound of cries and the helter-skelter of human feet as a new hail of machine gun fire sweltered the air with deafening metallic impact. People were screaming. Single shots ricocheted, loud enough to come through distinctly above the fray. Jonah looked over at Octavio. He was holding bars against him, covering her head with his hands. He looked over at Lazaro, who said something, but the gunfire came again even louder, and he couldn't make it out. There were more screams, some close and some distant, disconnected, lost to each other, coming from indeterminate corners of the night. Then it got quiet. Lazaro looked over. Katumbi, he said without lifting his head. A tiny voice barked through a loudspeaker. It was coming from the top of an armored vehicle, climbing like a beetle up through the favela. They could hear crying now. Above all, they heard voices of women screaming, calling names. The armored car was close, and they could hear the heavy diesel motor changing gears. The samba was still playing, and Cartola continued his song. Maso pranto en meguira, etal diferente, y un pranto semblanco, que alegra a gente. Jonah thought of Angelica hiding on the floor clasped in her mother's arms, of her being shot, or more likely it occurred to him, her brother being shot. Was this the cleanup operation for the Pan-American Games? There was an astonishing quiet for a time with only sporadic, isolated shouts. But as the machinery of the military police receded again, someone somewhere in Katumbi turned the rap back up. Farce, who hadn't quite lost her composure, said calmly that they should go home. The acrid smell of the firefight was in the air and there was an ambient tension all around them. Men shouted at each other in the darkness and the sudden beam of search patrol lights and gleaming muzzles clasped by paramilitary forces in balaclavas seemed to emerge from the darkness swift as roaches. Jonah and Octavia walked directly behind Bar's single file, at her own recommendation, as she was least likely to trigger a nervous shot. She had dealt with patrols before, and she had a set pattern of phrases in both Portuguese and English to signal that they were American tourists. The soldiers barked at them and instructed them to proceed in the direction they were already heading. The sound of children crying came from the maze of shadows. It was dawn by the time they got back to the Rua Gustavo Sampaio. Coconut venters were setting up their stands and adjusting their displays. Joggers headed out for the morning runs on Copacabana Beach. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Jesse McCarthy, author of The Fugitivities, out now from Melville House. This episode originally aired on August 26, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. 
For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.